Welcome back to Swim Bike Talk. I'm here today with Felicity Sheedy Ryan, also known as Flick. Flick is a two-time duathlon world champion, World Cup winner, five-time Continental Cup winner, four-time 70.3 winner, and with plenty more podiums and substantial results throughout her career. Flick's known for her super run speed, which has driven fear into many of her competitors. Flick, thanks for coming on. How are you going today? Yeah, good. Thanks for having me, Kat. It's an honour to be on your little podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you as my second guest. I think uh, well, a World Cup winner is pretty important. We'll get we'll get onto that a little bit later. But uh, dive straight into the questions. I just want to know, really, how did you start out in triathlon? I did a little bit of research and saw you were into gymnastics <laughs> beforehand. Yeah, funny, funny enough, I started gymnastics when I was about or three a little bit earlier than you're allowed to start and yeah I did that for years and funnily enough we were actually um you know going to be put into a program at one stage to try and make the 2000 Olympics for gymnastics so I kind of had that sporting seed and that uh Olympic dream sort of planted pretty early on but yeah once I quit gymnastics um or left gymnastics I guess um played a little bit of netball and some team sports but yeah, I ended up doing a um, corporate triathlon for my dad. He needed a swimmer, of all things, which is not my background. And, yeah, I started off just doing that for him, and I just absolutely loved it when I finished it. And, as yeah, cliche as it is, I just wanted to do the whole thing and was hooked straight away, did another corporate event with him, and I didn't look back since since then. What sort of age were you when you, well, when your dad started asking you to do that? So I actually, I guess, started quite late. Um, I probably would have been about 16 or 17, I guess. So, yeah, I did a lot of other I said the other sports and just running and just fitness and cycling around just for fun. Um, so, yeah, I was quite a latecomer to the sport by, I guess, normal standards now. But, yeah, since I started it, I just, yeah, it was just one of those things. I just thought, oh, my God, I've, I've found my passion. I've found my, my thing. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what would that have been? Early 2000s, 2000 one what would be uh yeah Yeah. that would be yeah pretty pretty close somewhere around there 2001 something like that and then uh from there 2006 i saw was your first uh result on i've done my research on the itu (laughs) website world triathlon now sorry and uh i think you raced in the under 23 oceania champs might be testing your memory here i am i can i can tell you my very first uh well, senior or my very first elite race I did was uh, with a good friend of mine, Jeremy Drake, who I used to train with. And we went to Hobart and raced over there. And that was my first sort of introduction to elite racing. And yeah, boy, oh boy, <laughs> that was tough. But uh, yeah, I really loved it. I couldn't wait to, to be racing the best. And that's where it started. So that was, uh, I'm just going to say 2006 here, if that sounds about right. Where did the steps take you from there, to, uh, moving forward into uh, what, what was your training sort of like? Did you increase the training load? Did you focus more on triathlon rather than work or study or something? Or what was your sort of progression through those few years? Yeah, so I guess once I um, when I started uni, I, I started looking at it a bit more um, professionally or just full time, I guess, and I, I had a decision like when I was 19 uh, I think it was to just as I was at the cusp of I I qualified for my pro license and I had that decision of whether I wanted to try to go to a world champs and at age group and try and win a win a world title there Um, but I chose not to I just my I've always been so competitive and the path I wanted to take was I just wanted to be racing the best in the world I didn't care who it was how I went I just wanted to know where I stood and race the best of the best. So I took out my pro license straight away and that's, yeah, I started straight off from there. And, you know, I said some races, well, there was certainly some highlights running went pretty good in a lot of the races, but, you know, I was, I was really underdeveloped in my, my swimming at that stage. So yeah, it wasn't easy starting, starting up. I definitely got my, um, my beep handed to me a few times <laughs> when I started <laughs> off. <laughs> um, and always, I guess, my whole way through my career, I was always playing playing catch-ups. But, yeah, that's the path I took early and it was definitely where I wanted to go. I just didn't want to mess around with anything less than, than racing the best and wanted to work on and extracting the best out of myself. And, yeah, if someone else could be doing it, I just thought, well, why the hell? 
can't I? I'll, I'll take you on. <laughs> well, I think that's exactly right. That's the, well, the mindset you see in most elite athletes and especially everyone at the top. And we'll, we'll get to you being at the top a little bit later. That, uh, well, that's quite incredible. And from you, what was your sort of base like? So you from Perth originally. Did you stay in Perth for those sort of first few years or did you move to other places to train with coaches or to compete or move away for the Northern Hemisphere summer or? Yeah, so I started when I was, you know, early days, I said through through uni and stuff, I definitely was based here. Um, I was lucky with my first two coaches that I had. I had a really great little squad around me and that certainly, you know, ignited a lot of the love and enjoyment um, for the sport as well. Had a great pe- group of people to train with and so that's where it started and I love that and I certainly progressed with that um as I then started to move on I guess not so many of those people in my in my squad followed the same competitive path as I I did they they certainly raced competitively but no one really took it overseas or anything so I kind of did that on my own and then I started to to sort of branch out a bit you know people started to move on and get work and and things like that so I then went into more of a solo. I still had some some sessions with with um, other groups and swimming clubs and things like that. Um, but I had the same niche sort of little clique that we had had splintered a bit. But that was all right. Um, that was just part of my progression to go forward and the way I wanted to to improve. So um, I then went overseas and joined a French team and started racing over in Europe and I used... What sort of year are we talking about here? Oh, so that probably would have been probably... It would have been the first year I finished uni. So I went in in 2002, so probably 2006, I'd say. I was my first year overseas. So I stayed at home, um, finished my degree uh, at, at uni and then after that I started racing properly international and, and trying to improve from there. So... That would have taken me to some like under twenty, under tw- end of my under twenty three years, I guess, and yeah, joined a French team and lived with a family over there, and I used that as my base, and yeah, got to train with a French French club and had my own my own coach still sending me my my program from home, and from there I was able to start racing some like European cups and and World Cups and and progress from there. Yeah, and those French league races as well. I know how hard those French <laughs> races are. Um, but that's, well, pretty cool the experience you get that early on in your career and being able to live there and train with the team. And you, I believe you speak French as well, yeah? Oui. oui. <laughs> Je parle français. Oui. On peut faire un podcast en français plus tard, mais we'll keep it to English. Um, but yeah, so that's quite an experience for you. And I think, uh, how do you find learning French, do you think that's given you more opportunities or just made life a little bit easier for you? Uh, both, yeah. So, I mean, it was, you know, it's always a big, big thing for me the year I jumped, you know, to go out of home and to another country that I didn't speak the language with a bunch of people I'd never met before and, you know, share their house and their environment. So that was a real learning curve. Um, pretty quickly, I'd say within about 20 minutes of me touching down in France, I realised this is going to be a really long time if I don't learn to look after myself Um, I'm pretty independent so I quite liked the challenge of learning to speak French and I I took it upon myself I wanted to be able to communicate with my family with people I wanted to be able to look after myself and you know ask for my own things and you know I really hate being sort of doted over and and things like that Um, and luckily I guess it was really before the time of super technology coming, you know, little crappy Nokias and that's about it, you know, to speak to anyone back no home. No Google Translate on your phone or anything? Absolutely not. <laughs> there was just a lot of charades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, we had to Skype off the computer still just to get to speak to mum and dad. So, um, yeah, I, I went over there, I took a dictionary and a, and a piece of paper and I asked a hell of a lot of questions at the dinner table and you know my family had a little bit of English and that was enough for me to just start and I wrote a lot down and well the first few years I, I remember them saying to me you know Felicity I think it's just better if you speak English <laughs> 
<laughs> and so that's how good my French was going. Um, but yeah, randomly I sort of, you know, went away for, did that for one or two years. And then I just came back one year having not practiced it at all any more than when I'd left. And all of a sudden everybody understood me. Yes. <laughs> it's like it just sunk into my brain. And, you know, from then on I, I, I progressed and it, it definitely opened up my world. You know, I could translate for my French team for the other athletes that, you know, there might've been, you know, Russian or something and they only spoke English. So I'd sort of play the middleman telling them what to do and or telling them the chaos that was about to ensue with, yeah. with French, French team racing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely opened up a lot of opportunities. You know, I bought a car there. I, you know, got open banks and just talked talk to everyone and made a lot of French friends for that, for that reason. Yeah. Touching on that car you bought there, I remember asking you this question a while in the past, but uh, <laughs> I think I asked you, how, how did you go with having your car there and leaving it there? Like, Did you leave it somewhere? And you told me something about stowing it in some underground garage at a ski resort or something. Or What was that? Yeah, pretty close. So uh, I was lucky enough, one of the French teams that I raced for um, at some point, they had a sponsor and it was a like a holiday resort where over the summer we had a small apartment we, we could stay in for accommodation. So it's very much a summer-based place. So in winter, the, the place is empty. So they had this massive car park down there. So I just took the car and parked it in the fence corner <laughs> away where no one wanted to park. And it has a boom gate, so no one could really get get out. And yeah. I guess none of the French French workers thought, well, not my problem. So <laughs> I uh, left it and each year I came back and she was still sitting there full of all my, my affairs and footballs and old food. Full and... of petrol ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> ready for another and six months. Exactly. She uh, she lasted me uh, a couple of years, just needed a new battery every year and off she went. She was pretty pretty rough by the end yeah. <laughs> but did well, the job. Does the trick for you, doesn't it? Uh, another story uh, I remember asking you about your time in Europe – I think I asked about your bikes getting stolen or something. I'll touch on it at this point in the podcast. I think it's an appropriate time. So you, well, I already sound like a moron. <laughs> Let's just add to it. But you, so you had two bikes stolen all up, did you? Is that correct? Yeah. Now, this is this is pretty, pretty crazy. So I, I went there one year and to, I, I guess I'll, take the blame for, for this one a bit naive to the place that I was in I, I'd locked the bike up just had to do it's kind of you have the train stations and there's a bit of a central area where there's a few like shops and things that you need to you know I had to get a sim card and things like that so bike was always in eye shot and I locked it up just to do one or two things that was my transport into town uh unfortunately and came back and there was a bike no more so someone had so they'd use the bolt car doesn't get through with it. So that was one year I was pretty devastated and and you know lesson learned. The following year I went back and same place lived in the same place, same team, same everything, and had to go do the same affairs when I just touched down. So unlike the the first year, I had learnt my lesson, and so I did not let this bike out of my sight. I took it into all the shops, much to their protest, and and left it beside me while I did my few things. And I just went to get a rental car. And it was leaning on the glass a meter and a half from where I was. And I wasn't in there 30 seconds. And I saw someone come up and just take it straight in front of me. And I just missed grabbing them. I was still in my cleats and I yelled at them and they were inside the train station and they, uh, took off with it and me running down the, <laughs> the, the, the train station in my comping in my cleats. I know yelling. running in cleats isn't the easiest <laughs> thing in the world. <laughs> yelling, oh, arms wailing and everyone he jumped on the bike and obviously knew I was chasing him and that threw my bag at the wheel and missed and yeah he got away and cop car literally pulled out behind him and I was waving my arms at the cop car and they still they still missed him and that was the bike gone and you know at that point I had a semi-sponsorship with that that bike and I was just like oh my god what am I going to tell these people they're going to think I'm flogging their bikes <laughs> and two I was, years in a row <laughs> oh exactly and I was and what killed me was I was like I, I couldn't have been any closer to my bike unless I was sitting on it someone literally snatched it underneath my nose and I was like I can't believe that just happened I was in disbelief anyway I'll fast forward you know a little bit I had a world cup coming up and had nothing to train on I was not even a mountain bike like this was like a real average verge town bike which is all I had to fit me to train on it was terrible and then you know, Andrew Hewitt was nice enough to say that she'd let me her bike she was like seven hours away 
So I'd gone and picked that up. And then the day after or something, my uh, the coach from the French team was driving in the, the village next next door to where I was and saw this guy go past on a mini bike, way too small for him. And it, I'm so lucky it clicked. And he's like, shit, that's a that's felt. And then race fuel on the back. He's like, oh, my God, that's Flick's bike. <laughs> and so these guys were like followed them around in the car and called the cops and they managed to get my bike back. Far uh, out. I was, <laughs> for sure, as crazy as it got stolen was as crazy as it got found, and I couldn't believe it. I was sure that had been shipped off and they've got some organised crime around there. Oh, that's be, incredible. Yeah. Like once a bike's gone, generally it's gone. I know of other people who have had bikes stolen in actually a more bizarre situation. Won't go into that though, <laughs> but it's, you never see them come back. So the, you got that back is just incredible. <laughs> the odds of that going and the odds of that coming back were like <laughs> – hundred to I like it was the, it was impossible both ways and it happened both times. Yeah. So I was just like, what just happened? <laughs> so well, at least you got your bike back and then uh, didn't have to break I hope you didn't break the news to your sponsor at that time, but Yeah, that had already been out. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they I don't think they were too too pleased with that, but I was like, man, I'm telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. Well at least you got it back in the back into it. Yep, exactly. Well, we'll move on to the next question then. So, uh, oh, after your first few years in France, you started racing World Cup. So I'm just going off a couple of World Cup results here. 2009, I think you got a third place at uh, Tizzy Varus World Cup in Hungary. So that'd be your first major podium, you think? Correct. Yes, that was my definitely my first uh, big, that was my first World Cup podium um, and a great place to do it. Tizzy has a a really, as I'm sure you probably know, Kurt, oh, has a really very rich history. It in does the sport. went back a long time, and it was just this. It's this tiny, poor town in the middle of nowhere, and they just transform these two streets into an absolute triathlon party central, and it's extravagant. And you go outside of the town, and there's potholes, and you know, dogs with three legs, and no doors, and chickens running everywhere and it's just crazy it's just this complete transformation and so they love it and it's and it's probably the athletes one of the favorite races so yeah I was lucky enough to get to get third there that was pretty exciting and um, I think from memory that actually also sealed my um, first world elite world champs uh, start on the which happened to be the Gold Coast which was fantastic in, in Oz so. that's right that was 2009 as well yeah so that was yeah I was kind of just finding my groove a bit then and yeah that was really exciting so how did you feel going into that World Cup? Did you expect the podium or? No, then you're really testing my memory. Memory now, I've raced there a lot of times as well, and each comes with a really different a different story when I've been there. But I was in I was in good shape, actually. Funny, I, I remember this. So I think Erin Densham might have got fourth that year, just behind me, and and John O'Hall, her her partner and her her coach at the time, and was with the Aussie team. And, you know, he'll, unfortunately for Aaron, but I'll, I'll have to give a bit of thanks to him for this. I remember being in the race and getting caught up the back and in the bike. It's, a, it's really technical and, and hard to stay at the front in that race. And I remember him just almost just sounding angry at me and just yelling at me. He's like, you know, get to the front, like, sort your shit out, basically. And I just, you know, it kind of just kind of like wakened me. I was like in a bit of a, a zone. I was like, oh, I can't do it. I'm just going to have to stick here. And it, it kind of just got me thinking like, no, like, F this, like, make it happen. And I, and I got myself up there and it, and it put me in contention then with, with Erin running head to head. And unfortunately, I then ran away from her. <laughs> <laughs> she missed the podium. <laughs> so, but I'm really grateful for that. It was just one of those things that it just, something just clicked inside of me. I just needed a shake up and I just kind of got back in the zone and just the drive came back and I was running really well at the time and that was just the I guess the beginning of when I really got to show show my bike run strength was was coming through on the world stage yeah well I, even just going through this uh third two-thirds of a page of results I've written down here that was I think your first top 10 in a world cup as well so that's a huge step up yeah. and then uh well going from that into 2011 2011 you started racing on the world triathlon series circuit I don't know what they called it back then, World Triathlon Championship Series circuit now. But how? What were the steps you took to make it up to there? Obviously, you had your great result in Tizzy um, going through 2010 as well. I'm just skimming through my results here. You had another fourth at Holton World Cup and quite a few other decent results. I think uh, another win in some Conti Cups and plenty more podiums along the way. So, what was 
the steps you took to make that work for you? Any differences in your training or how you went day to day? Yeah, so I so that was definitely the first big uh, season I got of the series. There were they had called something the Dextro series before, so I did get to dabble in a couple of the. It was the same thing, but a couple of those big races in I think from like two thousand and nine and ten and stuff. Um, so um, I yeah, I'd had a few. The, the swimming was definitely always hit hit and miss with me. Basically, if I if I could get in in a good position from the swim. Um, I'd have a really good result. Um, if I had had a poor swim, I'd probably be down around 30th. I just just couldn't run run back up after the, the loss in swim bike time in the group. Um, so I, I certainly had a few um, good results along the way as leading to it, just gain, gaining experience, being, being able to do a couple a couple of them. But um, I think just mostly it was just – I was just getting stronger and, and getting more race – experience um certainly something i found racing up from world cups even to just the world series um it was quite a high pressure environment and i think i won't say i struggled as in um you know too nervous or, or anything but i don't think it was a really productive environment for me once I was up sort of working with um that wouldn't you know just working with triathlon Australia and, and the pressure that was put on I kind of got the you know I remember my first world cup I ever did I was I was terrified I'd, I'd raced for about six weeks in a row and again I had a coach in my corner that was like you know she's she's racing well you've got to give her a, a start like sorry another Australian coach wasn't even my coach that had seen it and and they they eventually did it but you know I remember getting this email it was just I was terrified of racing. I was like, this is a one-off opportunity. If you're outside, like the top 10, we're never going to give you a start. This start ever again. And, and you know, I rocked up there and um, I didn't have a great race. You know, I'd had four days of five days to organise myself to get there after like six weeks straight of racing. And, you know, and I, I had a meltdown. So that was my very first introduction. And although it wasn't as bad as that once you got into the WTS, I just felt there was a lot of pressure um and I kind of almost negative pressure as as opposed to feeling supported and and if you could make mistakes you're learning so that was probably the biggest jumps I noticed stepping up I found that quite difficult to navigate at the start it just it just didn't feel like a supportive productive environment once I guess I you know I managed to get a couple of good results in there you know like tones changed a bit but that was probably the biggest hurdle I had with racing at the very very top level world cup that wasn't quite so that wasn't felt as much um and I think that's something that to be probably honest across all my years racing the series uh, I think probably negatively impacted a lot of my results if I look back a lot of my best results came away from that environment even if you're taking results aside just enough I knew if I'd put that performance in a WTS race I would have had a really great result but I didn't feel like I really nailed those races at the top level so that was probably the biggest adjustment um which I had to navigate to be perfectly honest um of course the level of competition was was high and you're racing extremely good good girls um you know there's lots of things I learned along the way I, I stopped getting angry on the bike if if things weren't working you know I was always one trying to drive to I guess make up for my deficit in the water and um sometimes you had people that would would help often majority wouldn't and that used to really frustrate me and get me mad and you know the things I learned that it's just pointless you can't control what other people are doing that's just wasted energy I either need to be nice to people and encourage them to help um else just don't bother you just you've got to carry that weight on your shoulders do you want to drive hard so they were probably a few of the the real big learning things I guess and then once I got to 2011 and 12 um that was the first time I really got to put a whole series together and definitely in 2012 um there was funny it was that year that like there was the I can't remember what was where there was the nuclear meltdown thing in Japan oh yeah yeah and one of the races in Japan got postponed at the start of the year and it actually got put to the end of the year and was part of the follow so it might have been done at the end of 2011 but it was 
classified as part of the first race of 2012. Yeah, okay. So I got to do that race and I actually had a reasonable good race there. I was finished up the top end and for that reason, I was ranked, you know, in the top 15. I think I've got that noted down here, 14th place at Yokohama 2011. There we go. So it meant going into 2012, I was actually ranked 14th in the series it's and not a bad start. No. no. <laughs> and for those that don't know, the WTS series is kind of like, it's a world championship series. So you get points through every race and then I think your top five races or whatever at the end of the season, uh, whoever's got the most points out of that is world champion. So, yeah, so it was, it was great. It was a great start, but what that did for me, which I'd never had either, like, you know, just clawing my way desperate for starts, you know, we had some amazing Australian girls racing at the time at the likes of Moffy and, you know, Emma Snow's Hill and Annabelle Luxford. And there was just, a, there was just a whole, um, you know, Erin Densham, like the level of racing was exceptional in, in Australia at that point. And, um, what that did for me was actually allow me to plan a season <laughs> for 2012 because I was, you know, I got the given the grace of, of being allowed to pick my races and, you know, Triathlon Australia could let me, you know, put down what did I want to do because my ranking was, was so high. I into, And going to tw- 2012, it just, I had it all laid out and I'd actually never really been able to do that before. I was always kind of like last minute hoping I'd get a start here or I'd be given it here and, whether I had points or didn't have points and things like that. And it had a really beneficial effect. 2012 was definitely my most successful season. I pretty much either had top 15s or I had more like 30s, just depending where the, where the swim went. Oh, yeah. I think your best result I've got written down here, I may have missed some, but was in uh, Kitzbühel in Austria. You came 12th at that, so... That's that's not when they did it up the mountain, was it? No, and I'm spewing because I that was the oh that's going into another another thing. That was the following year, and as I might have touched on, I after 2012 for some reason I was then no longer allowed to race WTS races and never really got to a start line again after my best season. So we won't go into that. But we'll come back to 2012 quickly. You also did the Duathlon World Championships. What do you think going into that? Because you are a strong bike runner. Swimming, I think, would be your weakest leg. Um, and going into duathlon, that seems like it suits you perfectly. What were you thinking going into duathlon world champs in uh, Nancy in France? Yeah, do you know what? This is definitely definitely one of the highlights and one of the races I was most excited for probably almost across my career. And I say that because I just, as I said, 2012 was actually a really great season for me. Um, I was so fit. I was really happy. I was really enjoying what I was doing. I loved where I was. I had some good friends around me. And... I just knew by the end of the year, like, I was getting fast. And I was, you know, I was very quick running. I was going to Grand Prix and getting the fastest run splits even after, you know, hammering a bike. And I might not have won the race, but my run was up there. Even that Kitzbühel race, you know, I was in a Gwen Jorgensen, um, Ashley Gentle sandwich, and we were all running the same path. You know, we were, I was like, this is great. I'm with probably the two best runners in the, in the sport at the moment. And so I knew I was in really really good shape and um I was really excited about that race so of course you never know what's going to happen but it's just it's I'm really lucky that that's one and it was so different to my normal racing because I'm usually on the back foot it's one that I I guess you have those proud moments or those real learning curves is I had to race so differently because I was racing from the front and I went out and was feeling good and you know, I just thought, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to do what people do to me in the in the swim and I'm going to make these guys that are hanging on the back, I'm going to make them suffer and, <laughs> and I'm going to notch it up again and I'm going to see who comes with me. And, of course, I didn't want to blow my own gasket, but I think from memory I just sat like 10 metres in front of everyone. So it was it was just dangling the carrot to the, to the good runners to stay with me and it splintered the rest of the the field and we had a small bike and then you know once you got onto the second 5k run it was just unleash it's you know who's who's got the legs and I'm like yeah that day I I've just had been running amazing and I and it all came together and I and I ran really well and felt amazing out there and it was just a fast day (laughs) and pretty incredible feeling I can imagine crossing the finish line first in that yeah, definitely. Winning your first world title is was something just like, whoa, that's pretty. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Did you ever think you'd win a second? No, I no. I guess, 
I hadn't really thought, never really thought that far ahead. I just kind of took yeah. it as it as it went. I certainly, I put myself on start lines, or I definitely thought I had another another chance. Um, but at the time, you know, I just kind of soak in the moment, I guess. Yeah, we'll keep that a uh, spoiler alert until a little later on. And uh, <laughs> well, next up then. So I can imagine 2013, 2014 would have been pretty hard for you, but still, looking at your results, you had six of the World Cup in 2013, and then uh, another eight. Uh, two eighths in Palamos and Alanya in 2013 and 14. But 2015, what happened there? Did you have a bit of a drive to pick it up? Or because back to Tizivaris, where you got your first podium, um, came back there in 2015, and what happened there? That was, um, yeah, that was that was great. I think um, that going back again, if saying to probably my, some of my proudest races, I that would probably have to be one of them. Um, that race, I think, honestly, a lot of that win was desperation for me. I was back in a place. I love Tizzy. That's it. It's it's so fun. It's whether you whether you win or you lose. As I said earlier, like that race is just hands down one of the funnest on the circuit, and all athletes will attest to that. I just love the place. It's always hot. It's hot and dry. The race itself doesn't actually particularly suit me. The course doesn't really favour me too much. Other was than that, that when they uh, they didn't have it in that duck pond anymore, did they? They uh... no, they had it in a fish pond. <laughs> now <laughs> even smaller. <laughs> yeah, this was tiny. I, I'm perfectly honest. Nearly everything about that race doesn't suit me. However, um, you know the Olympics were coming up the following following year, and um, yeah, we I was with a coach at the time and you know something I've certainly noticed over the years the few times I've had I've really had a coach backing me 110% preparing and and being behind me for a race it's made a really big difference to my psyche and my performance and this was one of those instances We, we were all in for that race and yeah it was just it was one of the ones that I um that had heats and heats and finals and I think it was I just raced really smart. You know, I, again, I, I actually wasn't in the best the best shape. I was actually carrying a bit of a torn hammy. But... You should do that more often. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't know at the time, but that, that's what it was. And, um, yeah, it was just one that I raced really smart. With a heats and finals day, you have to um, obviously, you know, you have to be clever in how you race. You just have to do enough to, to qualify. You know, I'm not a great swimmer. It didn't really matter where I stood on the pontoon. I was probably going to get my, you know, ass handed to me wherever I started. Um, but, you know, I even remember, you know, going out onto the run and one of the, you know, good runners, she, she took off and I just thought, oh, it's, just, it's just too fast. I just, that's going to be too quick. I'm just going to have to roll the dice here. And, yeah, she blew up and just a few tactical things I did in the race gave me the upper hand and it is the only sprint finish I have ever won in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the only one I ever will because uh, that was definitely not my forte. Um, but the big difference there, I think, for me is if I won that race, I, I, I said I'd, I'd had a few years off the, the series um, for, for other reasons that we won't go into, and that almost ensured me a start and it gave me a chance at the Olympics and I knew that running running down to the finish for me, it was just, that was probably one of the most emotional finishes I've had. I just burst into tears across the finish line, not for the win, but I say I'm almost, almost make me tear up almost now, but yeah. it gave me, it, it gave me, it was a lifeline for me and it, it bought me something that I was just so desperate for and it, it gave me a chance and even the, the little girl that I was racing that got second, you know, she came over and she, she knew what I'd been going through and, it was just so sweet, you know, Audrey, she was just so happy as well for me because she knew what what that win meant, the the weight of it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think for you as well, taking that win, your first World Cup win, and, well, only at this point, which is still fairly incredible, and to do it at a great race like Tizzy, that's, I don't think, there's many other World Cups. If anyone could win one World Cup, I think Tizzy <laughs> yeah. would be the one to do it at. Tizzy's the one, so, yeah. <laughs> your heats and finals. Um yeah, that's. Would you say that's your best result ever? Um, oh, I'm not sure. It's definitely, it's definitely up there. As I said, it's probably one of my proudest races because I extracted everything. I, I don't think I was the fastest person out there on the day, but 
I really think it's one of those cases where everyone's competitive, but I honestly think I wanted it more because I had so much riding on it and just smart and, and stuff. So it's one of my, definitely one of my best performances, um, maybe not just athletically, but certainly from other aspects. It's, yeah, it's one that I, I really put my, my head into to be clever to pull that one off and, and, it, and, it, and it worked. And that's going back to what you said at the start of the podcast as well, how you just wanted to do it. You wanted to race the best in the world and you wanted to be the best out of all of them. So you can see that's carried right through your career. Yeah, it's definitely been one of my most painful finishes <laughs> I think I've ever had. Oh, I the think pain had... goes away pretty quickly though, doesn't it? <laughs> I think the finish line photo shows that, my God. It looks like you've got lactate just pouring out your eyeballs. But, uh, yeah, it was definitely worth it. I might find that photo to post on the uh, Instagram page <laughs> at Swim Bike Talk once this goes up. Uh, another win uh, for you. Fast forward to 2017, you, spoiler alert, sorry, um, <laughs> going back to the duathlon world champs. So you, you competed in another one or two between 2012 and 2017, I believe. And what, what were your thoughts going into 2017, five years older, uh, sports, oh, not changed too much. It's still run, bike, run. But what, what were your thoughts heading into that, into Penticton and Canada? Yeah, well, you're certainly picking the, you're picking the good races there, Kurt. Um, yeah, you're right. I did one other duathlon in between, which I actually really was hell-bent on taking out a second title, I will say there. Unfortunately, again, this was, um, I think that was probably just leading a bit back on from some of these other races. I, um, I had my first proper hamstring tear, and that happened the day before I got on the aeroplane to come home to Australia sat on the airplane I got off and she was she was done so I did make that start line and I was in really good shape um was that Adelaide correct yeah a home turf oh. and I did everything I possibly could but you know it was a grade two tear it wasn't a it wasn't nothing and um it held up to about 9k I managed to stay in the front group and then I just started to feel it give give way it didn't have much more to 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 give in me and I had to pull out of that race um knowing again that there was some some other big races coming up that were important with, with Olympic things and things like that. So um, I think it was, yeah, if I'm, maybe my maybe no, there was something else. as well. Yeah, but, yeah. maybe I'm thinking Com Games, maybe I'm wrong, sorry. But um, no, no, it would have been Olympics. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Um, so, yeah, so that was so that was definitely one I looked at. Now, <laughs> giving a good injury history here as I go, but in, in 2017, um, I, I looked into it. It's a race I, I really wanted to go back to and just give it another crack and <laughs> give it another nudge. And same deal, six weeks out, I took a tumble and I rolled my ankle real bad and I'd only just started my build intensity into it. Um, and I sat down with my coach at the time and, very quickly, it's like, do you wanna, do you wanna go? And I was just like, man, I paid my money to go and pay my injury fee. Like, <laughs> let's just give this a crack anyway. And uh, you know, I'll have to give full credit to him. At that that point, we, um, I had the most, what's the, what am I say, the, the strangest lead up, the most, <laughs> um, bizarre lead into a duathlon world champs I guess I could could have you know as I said I was I was couldn't even run for a while so I was pretty stressed and yeah to his credit once I said let's go he did not let me skip a beat I was swimming three times a day I was swimming hard sessions you know my arms are falling off but I stayed fit um until I could then you know build back the bike and you know I was really bike fit already before that so I didn't lose too much there but um yeah obviously the run leader but I only got a couple of hard run sessions done but I'd worked super hard um on the bike before that I was really fit the, the swimming had had kept me super super fit and I actually got there and to some extent we actually dicked up the course profile a bit I got there and these heels were massive <laughs> and I was like this is not what we thought the course was gonna be but it was perfect in my favour and I remember looking at it and going, this is great, this is fantastic. I'd just come off um, altitude with some really steep climbs and all I'd be doing was going up these mammoth climbs up to like 3,000 metres and, it, and it, was, it, was, it was perfect. And given the, the lack of running speed I'd been put into my legs, um, again, it was probably one of my prouder races. I was nervous going into that race because I had no idea how I would run and 
I did something I had talked about with my coach not to do is the first thing I did, <laughs> but a, an opportunity presented and you said, you know, we, we saw the hill and I said, I'll just suss it out. And I got on the bike and I, I just said, don't break away straight away. And I, right out of transition and up the first hill, an opportunity presented. <laughs> and I just thought, again, effort. I'm, I'm, I'm going for it. Like it's a 40K time trial, but this is this is my chance to get a break on the faster runners given given my you know foot had had not been uh, playing ball and I had my limited run prep and it paid off it was one of those you know risk it for the biscuit and and it and it yeah it came through so that was really different circumstances to my other my other world title I won it in a completely different way on a different strengths and I think they're the things you take some I don't know some pride or some satisfaction in I yeah. guess it's just not sort of been a one trick thing. This was just completely unplanned and reacting to an opportunity I saw that presented itself in the race and just thought, shit, let's give it a go. So you did it the hard way, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> just shows the dominance a little bit more. Do you think you'd like to get back to duathlon world champs in the future? After after that, I always, I always had, I always thought I'd love to give it a hat trick. I'd love to give it a, a shot. Um, obviously COVID and some things have happened and a lot of times passed since then. Um, and I'm undecided whether that opportunity will present itself to me again, but it is, it was definitely 100% a goal of mine to go back and do, to do another and do it well. I think you need to wait till they, uh, make a, another course up a mountain. Cause again, going <laughs> through some of these World Cup results, you've got a, what do we got here? Way high 2017, fourth. Carla Vivari 2017, sixth. Uh, what else have we got? You've won Carla Vivari Conti Cup in 2013. They are. I know you're, you're spotting the theme here. <laughs> <laughs> All of those very big hills. You should do Arzen Keza or something like that. Those, uh, Italian races. I think you do well there. Yeah, yeah, no. I, well, you, you, you actually good on you for saying that. I, um, I love hills. I, I definitely do. I kind of like, I just, I think it's more honest racing and I've always liked that and I've always, probably liked the real the pain of hills that it inflicts on on everybody and the fatigue that it puts in and I just feel like a strong fit person generally ends up winning those races and yeah it's something I've certainly gravitated towards. We'll move on from your uh, world triathlon career now or ITU at the time uh, you've done a, few, a little bit of long course racing as well some 70.3s have you done a full Ironman or is that I, a little bit? No, I haven't, and it's not for the lack of people trying to make me do one. <laughs> um, strangely enough, it's never, I won't say never, but at this point it's its not something that's overly appealed to me, and I, I have a huge respect for it, and I do enjoy watching, and the sport is changing, and it's getting more and more exciting. However, for some reason, it's never drawn me in as much, even though I, it would probably play to my strength. It's, it's probably where my calling would be. But it's just, yeah, I, I think I just loved racing so much and I loved the intensity and I loved going to the wire and pushing the, you know, redlining and having that ability to play in a race as opposed to kind of having to stick a bit more to your to your numbers, to your paces. Otherwise, you know, you just you've got a one way, one way street to, <laughs> to Deadsville. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing is I've just even you know been so far back off some ITU races with poor swims. I loved the thrill of chasing and running people back, and how hard can I push myself, and who can I catch? Um, and so I think that's probably that one of the big drivers away from Ironman at this stage to me. Um, and also, it's just a really long time with yeah. your bike. I'm not sure oh, how a... I could see if I can sit on it for that long. <laughs> but um, yeah, I certainly, you know, I love the non-drafting aspect as well. But yeah, it's not something I've done yet. The seventy point threes, though, and that sort of half distance race. You well, Bustleton half Ironman. You've won four of them. You've got another eight seventy point three podiums, if I'm correct. Uh, how, how have you found those seventy point three racing and? you would have done a little bit of long distance while mixing it with the ITU racing. How do you find the balance between the two? I know with some of these Norwegians going around now, you can see them back up Ironman and sprint distance and whatever they want. But how do you find it? 
Yeah, it's funny actually. I think they've almost changed the. They've certainly changed the way people are viewing now. Certainly, Ironman, you know, sprints are pretty extreme. However, you know, a lot of people poo pooed me for it through the years, but I, I always saw the crossover to be very, you know, eligible to achieve. achieve. Like, um, I really enjoyed doing a couple of seventy point threes in amongst my other training and. I always thought it really benefited me. Maybe the style of training that I did for my ITU racing, the way I trained was probably um, made the transition quite easy into into the 70.3s. Um, so I, do, I definitely think both are possible. I mean, now with bikes changing and TT bikes and stuff, that adds another little dimension that you have to have to manoeuvre. But I, um, yeah, I really enjoyed them in small in the small doses. Um, again, same with the, as I mentioned with the Ironman, there's an aspect of the short course racing that I really miss in, in long course. I just love that intensity and trying to be fast as much as I actually love running long and time trialing and, and individual. I mean, I think probably my most fun, one of my best, most enjoyable distances would be non-drafting Olympic. And I think it's probably almost some of the hardest distance that you could do like that. But something like Noosa, exactly. Where yeah, I should yeah, add another. You yeah. came second place at Noosa, and I don't know what year I didn't ride that town, but still another hilly course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, got a got a hill in there. Um, so yeah, no, that's I I, I do. I, I think the the seventy point three I certainly really enjoy, and you know it's definitely a, a path I'm pursuing more that direction. But there's uh, there's always a part of me that just misses. The misses the fast stuff, even though it was some aspects of short course racing were just so difficult to me and meant I didn't get to get the results that I felt like I, I warranted. Um, but that's 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 what I signed up for and that's part of the package, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a – I don't know. Even now I still find it hard. I, I like a hybrid. I, I really I really do. I, I sometimes get a bit bored, but just the, the 70.3 is a long, you know, the, the bike and... You can be alone for a lot stuff. of it as well. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, it, they're different, and I, there's aspects I like in, in both of them, but, um, yeah. Well, that answers my next question pretty well. I was going to ask whether you prefer long distance or short distance, but I think you've answered it for me. <laughs> <laughs> certainly a bit of, certainly a bit of, a bit of both is, uh, yeah, it's... Well, we'll move on to uh, the, not the last question, but the last in this series. So you have been around in the sport for uh, quite a while and what, 2001, you started dabbling in it through, right through to, well, at the moment, I know through COVID, it's been a bit tricky to get a lot of races in and then some uh, fun injuries have really put a dampener on this year when everything opened back up for you. But what do you think has helped you be successful for so long starting off racing in France in 2006 through to WTS and then 10 years later, well, 2017, winning another world title and still quite close to some top 10, well, sorry, quite a few top 10s in World Cups. Uh, Even another start at WTS in 2016, I know you're a bit sick for that, but 2017, still a good race there. Being able to hold that over 10 years, is there anything you think that's really helped you through that? I... I think sometimes in, I think for one, it's some people do it and they, they like it and stuff. And then there's other people that are just kind of, it's just becomes part of your DNA. Like I just loved getting out there and testing and so many people do, but I feel like there's sometimes there's a two different groups that do the same thing. And some are kind of happy to walk away quite easily and other it becomes a real integral part of, of everyday life. And I feel like I fall into that one for one thing. I definitely think. Um, in some ways it probably, it might've hindered me in certain aspects of, of racing and in others, I think it's given me the longevity that I have. And it's something that I was always really conscious of early days. And it was, it was having fun along the way. And it was doing, it was sometimes doing things differently. It was not, um, it, it wasn't letting life is still life. And that's kind of super important to me. So it was still taking time to do the things outside of triathlon that I loved. It was as simple as going to the beach and stuff or going and meeting my friends for for a drink at the, the pub and watching the sunset and stuff. And I know there's some coaches, even as to me, it was just crazy that it was 
you'd be told, "This is what are you doing?" And I was like, "It's it's nothing that was detrimental to training, but it made me a happier person." And I think having that and not getting so all consumed in in the bubble, I think, has really given me life to stay in the sport for as long as I have and still be so motivated this many years later. Um, that's a big one, I think, for me. And I said it'll it'll come across. Some people won't agree with it, but this, I always had this thing, and it was like you can't you can measure. You know, you can measure run paces, you can measure this, that, and everything. But what you can't measure is like the ment- the mentality or how you're feeling. Like I might have lost a half a percent or one percent by doing that thing for the following day. You know, that session. But I gained ten percent for the whole week by being refreshed and happy and seeing other things. And I feel like I some people I struggled to to get that understanding with and for sure I think I trained the best I was the most committed I was the most like ruthless you know had the had the most um ticker and drive when that was implemented and I think it it did huge things for me even though some people might have looked down down on it I think it made me a much stronger better athlete and it's given me length of time in the sport I think you're exactly right there and as you said it's not for everyone some people can just go live and breathe the sport all day, every day. But that balance is, I know it's incredibly important to a lot of people. And as you said, refreshes you, might be half a percent off the next day, but if it lets you perform better throughout the week and takes your mind off things, like you need to make sure your head's in the right spot as well. So that's, no, I think that's uh, very smart. Yeah, it's certainly not fair, but everyone's, it's individual. You know, that's just something I found I thought was great for me. And I've always had this little mantra of a happy athlete is a good athlete. You perform best when you're, content and things are well and I've seen both sides of that in in myself uh, 100% without doubt you know when things when I'm poorly and training is hard and so yeah it's just something that I've I've tried to to stick by and you only get one life and you know I'll I'll commit 100% to what I'm doing but you know if I die tomorrow as well I want to make sure that I'm happy and didn't neglect family and and things along the way like that yeah exactly right very smart. Well, we'll move on to the last bit of the podcast, which is my five for all. I'm glad I didn't call it the uh, Fast Five like it was going to because another triathlon podcast I just listened to released the Fast Five questions the same <laughs> oh, week as I dropped the first one. So <laughs> the, uh, the, that was not an idea stolen from that. I recorded the podcast before that came out. Anyway, the five for all. So same questions as Guy. Uh, what's the earliest you've blown up in a race? <laughs> You know, I read this and this this cracked me up because I was thinking probably like 150 metres into it. <laughs> you know, when I've been the non-swimmer and not having that swim speed, man, sometimes by the first boy, I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've got another two hours to go and I'm cooked. Oh, no. <laughs> That's, yeah, not a good place to be in, but... No, you learn to learn to adjust. No, most definitely, I've definitely been uh, in in some pretty lactated situations very, very early on, and and then having to come round and yeah. recover from that. <laughs> that would probably be almost off the gun. It's, oh crap! Not not a fun spot to be. Well, into a uh, number two. What's your favourite race location or favourite race in general? Um, I would have to say Noosa still has to be one of my favourite races. It's both location is amazing. Love the beach, love the place there. Um, and it's just one of the funnest, one of my most favourite races to do. And then probably outside of that overseas, um, I sort of thought of two others. And I think Lausanne, Switzerland was always really, it was really pretty and really nice. And, and Hilly. once again, Hilly. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, and you're going to laugh when I say this one then. And my third one was probably the Outdoors Triathlon. <laughs> That one's a little hilly. <laughs> yeah. You just need to do races wherever there's hills. So, yeah. So that's like, I mean, not to do it every time, but as an experience and just a cool spot, that race was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Question three. What's your worst travel experience? Oh, God. Just, I could write an appendix on these, but the very worst I probably had was an, an Air Canada flight coming back from from US Canada back to Europe. I'll try and make it short, but 
delayed by X amount of hours, sitting on the plane for maybe three hours till they said we hadn't left the tarmac. Okay, flight cancelled. Off we got. This is now like, you know, 11 p.m. or something, 10 p.m. I'm the last one to, the, you need to go into a queue and we'll sort you some accommodation for the night and put you on a plane tomorrow. Because I had my bike on the thing, I was last to get my bike, oh, yeah, so yeah. I was last to get in the queue. And I waited, and I'm not even joking, in that queue until about 3 or 4 a.m. Standing there. We finally got to the front, and they sent us on our way. It was about a 30-minute drive or so to, oh. the, to the hotel. We got to the hotel, the last load of us. Don't tell me you turned around and came back to check in again. They go, why have they sent you here? We told them we have no rooms. We've cleaned all the dirty. We have done everything, and there was no room at the hotel. And you just saw people spit it in different different ways. One guy's like, I'm sleeping on the floor, and you're hopping your foyer, so like, like everything. And, I, and so they go, all right, we'll put you back on a on a bus and a taxi, and we'll send you back to the airport. <laughs> we got back, and it's like 5 a.m. or something. Like you've been standing all night. And then they say to me, okay, we've got you another hotel it's 45 minutes away across peak hour in like montreal or something and then you'd have to check out at like bloody 10 a.m and i was like you are joking it's like 7 a.m now or something and they're going yeah we've got your hotel sorted i'm like there's been people that have been asleep all night at the front of the queue and i haven't even left your queue they've been to bed and woken up that's so pretty bad i lost <laughs> the plot and they were one of the guys speaking speaking french he it was um, French Canadian, and yeah, I used my my best French and told them in French they were running the show like a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> and I cracked it, and I cracked it, and then finally, oh, what do you know? Okay, you can stay at the the airport hotel, like two minutes away. No, uh, I was just, my God, so yeah, that actually uh, then the flight and the everything. I was I pretty much lost a week out of, of oh, training out of that after travel and that's jet bad. It was really bad. That's so. yeah, that tops my worst one. Well, <laughs> all right. Question four, a little bit happier. What's your? Oh, do you have a pre-race meal or something you always eat before do you know a race? What? Not really. Actually, I'm not a superstitious. I, I've learned to not do that because you can't. You know, you go to Korea and you can't get penne spaghetti there. You know, or whatever, yeah. whatever you want. You just have to adjust. I just go for the basics if I can. You know, rice, some veggies, and keep it pretty, oh, good. pretty simple. And you know, if there's not that, there's pasta. If there's not that, you know, I, I probably tend to avoid things like pizza and stuff too much because I can get a bit, I think makes me a bit thirsty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, otherwise, not really. Usually, something to do with pasta or rice. Oh, cool. Uh, all right, last one. Is there anything you can't travel without, and not your bike? Because I know that someone's going to come along one day and say, I "Can't travel without my bike." <laughs> yeah, that's true um well okay taking training gear aside something i nearly always travel with anyway even if i'm just driving down to mars to, to visit family it's probably my phone roller yeah yeah that's just for me just i need it to unlock after any any travel that's probably my little saving grace yeah well they are good aren't they <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you use it well after that uh night in montreal Oh, yeah, <laughs> multi-use as a pillow, pillow yeah, for a while. Yeah, they actually work pretty well, don't they? Exactly. Well, that's uh, that's almost all I've got for you today. So I'd just like to say thanks for coming on and spending uh, just about an hour of your time talking me through a good 15, 16, more than that, 20 years of your career. And uh, just some parting words. What's... Um, on the word let me read it here what's some advice that's not a word i should forget really <laughs> what's some advice you'd give to yourself if you saw yourself starting out in the sport again right before you jumped on the plane to france okay just directly to myself not someone young no go to yourself what's okay. something you wish you would have known or something like that i think hindsight's as i said it's a great thing um i think one of the biggest things would have been to stand up for myself more in certain situations when it was warranted. I think I missed a lot of opportunities that I now – oh, not a lot. There was opportunities that were there that should have been there that I can't ever probably go back 
and get now, and that's something that I wish I had, I had fought harder for at the time. Yeah, Absolutely. I 100% agree. It's need to stand up for yourself. Well, thank you very much, Flick. Thanks for coming on and for the time, and I hope everyone that's listening has learned a lot about Flick. I know I have here. And, uh, well, yeah, feel free to subscribe, as always, uh, wherever you listen to this. I've got my Instagram, at Swim Bike Talk, Facebook page as well. I might put up a few photos of you winning some races and, I don't know, anything else cool that I find of you. I know I didn't put up photos for Guy. I'll better do that today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening and thanks for your time, Flick, and we'll see you next time. Awesome. Thanks for having me.